there's not a lot of people right now starting businesses that have gone through a bear market and know how to maneuver on tight margins. My margins are 2% in retail. We, you know, we, do, we did $22 million in revenue last year. My margin is 2%. So we make a shit ton of money, for example, on cash back, on credit cards, cash back. And like, it's funny, but I brought that here, right? We, I know how to squeeze out profits from, like, I know how to get blood from a stone, basically. Yeah. It, where, where did that come from? What do you think? The fact that I grew up on welfare. Like, that's my superpower. Yeah. I'm, I was poor when we came to this country in 90, you know, in 95. Hey guys, my name is Ben Berman and welcome to the Starting It Up podcast where I interview all types of entrepreneurs uncovering actionable steps and inspiration that you can use to build your business, your side hustle, whatever it is that you're trying to create and live the life you've always wanted. All right. Hey guys, how's it going? Welcome to the podcast. We're back in the uh, Swag Up HQ. Today we're interviewing Artem Mashkov, who is the COO. He's also a serial entrepreneur. He's done a ton of things. Artem, we've been talking, you know, for a while now. We've been talking about a bunch of different stuff. Kind of hand it over to you and, and get this conversation started. So I want to start at the beginning. You know, you, you are the COO at Swag Up. You run a, uh, a chain of Verizon stores. You've invested in a bunch of other businesses. You've run a bunch of other businesses. Where did this all start? Like, what was the first step that you had taken in your entrepreneurial journey? I didn't get into college after a very prestigious high school. Really? Uh, yeah. So I, I took a lag year, as the kids say. So I basically fucked up applying. I didn't send my transcript to one school and then I didn't send my SAT scores to another school. So I had an incomplete application for two schools. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, whatever. I just, I really didn't care about that stuff at that time. Even like in school, the only reason I had like okay, I mean, I didn't have okay grades, but I was like passing is so I could play sports and whatever, like the minimum grade was, you know, for me to play soccer or volleyball, that's the grade I got, you know, same thing for attendance. Um, but anyway, so I did, I did, I fucked up applying and then I'm like, I can't do nothing. So let me go work. And I went to work in a cell phone store basically seven days a week. And the reason they hired me is because I had cell phone store experience yeah. where I worked, you know, I gave out flyers when I was 16 years old outside of a store and then the guys wanted to like smoke some weeds so they're like yo can you watch the store while we go smoke <laughs> weed and i was like okay cool and i'm like yo this is my chance and i like sold a bunch of phones because i was giving out flyers at that point for like two months i and i read the flyers i knew the plans and uh whatever it was technology i'm a 16 year old kid I, knew, I know how technology works it wasn't as advanced as it is now we were selling like v60s i don't know if anyone's gonna get that reference but uh uh, and it was, yeah, so I was able to do it. Uh, and they came back. They're like, holy shit, you sold things? I'm like, yeah. They're like, you made more sales than we've made. So really? They, yeah. So they let me work inside the why, store. Why do you think, why do you think that was the case? Because I wasn't high. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> listen, I, I needed the money. Like I was making $5 an hour and I had, you know, a certain level of uh, hunger where these guys, you know, they, they just didn't. Um, yeah. And then also I just, I want to, so earlier that year, I had an experience where I basically, besides that job, I only, I worked in a summer camp, in a nonprofit Jewish summer camp, Shorefront Y in Coney Island, like Brighton Beach. And I made, I don't know, like $2,000. That was like for the entire year. Um, 
so earlier that year, I ran out of money. And my friends, like, we went to a restaurant, and my friends ended up, like, paying for me. Yeah. And ended up being that I ordered, like, the more expensive stuff on the menu. And they didn't really say anything. But then, like, I kind of saw the bill. I'm like, fuck, I'm a dick. Like, everyone... <laughs> Yeah. And I'm like, I don't want to be in that situation. I'm like, I don't care. So, you know, I'm like, let me go work for any amount of money. So I know I don't have to like ever. And, you know, like I'm okay with charity coming from like people that could afford it. But it was like kids my own age who had yeah. other jobs mm-hmm. afterwards. It's not a good feeling. Yeah. yeah. Like my family was on welfare. Right. So and I understood like that's you just have to go through that. But like later on to have like my friends who are also struggling for money, pay for me. That was that like, really, so that's like, that's where the hunger came from. Uh, and then, yeah, I'm like, yeah, I need to make these sales and I need to give a fuck. And, uh, so yeah, that, that's what it was. And then I was able to, they let me work in the store afterwards when I was 16. And then I had like volleyball practice or, and I was still, I made enough money. So I quit. But then afterwards I was able to come into a store. Like, hey, I have experience. Uh, you guys want to take me? And it was like my friend's older brother. And he hired me. I was like, cool. And uh, yeah, that's how I got that's how I got started in cell phones. So basically, him and his partner, they wanted to go into medical supplies. And they're like, hey, do you want to come in and take take the store? And I was like, oh, shit. Uh, I guess. I knew, Well, at that point, I was already managing the store. I, I, I pick up stuff fairly quickly. So I was already managing the store for them. They were like hanging out, partying. They were having a good time. I mean, they, were, they worked hard and they, they partied hard. But... You know, it's, it was it's, it was hard to keep up both. Me, all I was doing is pretty much working at that time. Uh, so I'm like, okay, I know, I know I know I could manage the store. I was just very scared to do it by myself. So I was, I asked the other guy that was working there, hey, do you want to split it? And he was able to get half the money. And then my mom was able to get me the other half, which was like the worst business decision in her life. Because like, you don't, like she gave me her life savings. You don't give your life savings over to someone who didn't like met, not didn't get into college. That's not even the point. The point didn't get into college because they didn't do the paperwork correctly. Right. And you don't, you know, after working in a cell phone store for six months, like you don't do that. That's like, that's a terrible, terrible business move. And she made like that mistake and it worked out pretty well. I paid her back, I think within eight months or so with interest. I insisted on the interest. Obviously she, she didn't, but just, you know, just to keep things fair. So, a year went by or something like that. And the original, one of the original partners came back like, Hey, do you want to do a store with me? I didn't like the, I didn't like the medical business. Do you want to do a store with me? And I'm like, uh, yeah, sure. Uh, let me get in, let me get one more person in because, you know, it's going to be hard for me to run this store and have another store. Um, And so when you, when when you, for anyone who isn't familiar with, this is franchising, right? Or, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's franchising, but it's not like as strict as a McDonald's. Like there's yeah. the smaller franchises have less rules. We're more like independent contractors Okay. for at that point it was multi-carrier. So we had every carrier ironically, except for Verizon in the, in yeah. that original store, T-Mobile became the main carrier after a little bit, but yeah, it's, it was basically a franchise under beep America doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. So, so how does that work? You, you, Ha- you want to you're managing one store that you actually bought into right and now to take over another store it's pretty much you just have the money you have some partners you guys put in the money you own it and now it's your job to manage yeah yeah, the store. You, yeah you're buying your you're almost buying yourself a job yeah that's Be- what it sounds like yeah <laughs> because you have to run the stores otherwise you don't have enough money to hire people 
mm-hmm. right? You maybe have enough money to hire one other person, but you're working there like six, seven days a week, like a mom and pop operation. Yeah, it's you know? not easy. Uh, no, no. So, yeah, so we brought in another person for this new store. Uh, it was a buddy of mine that I actually worked in. Uh, he, was, he worked in a sister summer camp, a nonprofit. And the thing is, with these nonprofit organizations in these camps, is there's a lot of good people there because they're willing to get paid nothing to do an excruciating, like a very, very difficult job, you know, dealing with kids and, you know, dealing with kids from not the best neighborhoods sometimes. It's yeah. difficult, you know. We had a lot of special needs kids in those camps too. So I met I met a lot of my good friends in in uh, these organizations. I'm going to give a shout out to JCH. That's where my uh, partner came from, Igor Budiansky, and then uh, I worked at Shore from Y in Coney Island. So, anyways, so I brought him in, right? And then um, I'm like, "Where do you guys want to do the store?" And the original partner, his name is Roman. He's like, "Let's do it in Williamsburg, Brooklyn." And this was 10 years ago, before people yeah. knew what Williamsburg, Brooklyn was. And uh, the when first, it wasn't so nice. Um, it, was, it was already up and coming. Yeah. Like, the, yeah, but it was obviously not, like, it wasn't what it is right yeah. now, you know? Uh, so let's do Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And I'm like, okay. And the first question, whenever you do any kind of retail, is what is the rent? Like, how big is it? What is the rent? Uh, we were paying in Sheeps Bay probably like $3,000 for maybe like 500 square feet. And this place was 800 square feet for, I'm not lying, six and a half thousand dollars. So I'm like, shit, that's more than double. How are we going to do this? I'm like, this is how many sales we have to do. I'm like, uh, okay, fuck it. I mean, like we went there and we saw the neighborhood and we saw how many people are walking by. We're like, you know what? Worst case scenario, we just will work the store one person, two people, but we'll just work through the store. Like we don't have salaries to pay. We're going to basically work it off. Um, and it was a Verizon store. And at that point, I was getting a little bit sick and tired of T-Mobile because the industry was becoming... This was before John Ledger uh, came on came on board, by the way. This is before his time. But okay. T-Mobile... Wait, sorry, who is that? Uh, John Ledger. He used to be the director of AT&T Global. And, okay. and he's like the superstar CEO that came to T-Mobile that like brought the no contracts. Uh, yeah. and he's the one that trolls everybody. Oh, okay. Uh, by the way, brilliant marketing guy. T-Mobile's product is absolute garbage, but he's in. It's the, not, it's not, I mean, it's not that bad. I have T-Mobile. Sure. I mean, here, here's what I'll tell you. Uh, it's relatively it's not garbage. that good, but it's, it's not that bad. You, you, yeah. It's not like H2O, one of the prepaid carriers, but it's. Let's put it this way: it's com- compared to how good their marketing and branding is, it it doesn't equate, which yeah. is fine because they're they're actually they're. They're doing well as a yeah. business. Well, that, well, that's why. Right, that's a big part of right. it. Right, yeah. exactly. They 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 save on the on the product and they invest mostly into marketing and branding. That's why they've been able to grow so far. Uh, but anyways, the big the, the bigger issue wasn't even the product. The product was whatever. I was still able to sell it. It was the fact that there was so much fraud going on uh, on on the T-Mobile uh, dealer side because they were just to prove everybody. And so you either had to commit fraud to be competitive, or you didn't commit fraud and then you weren't able to give customers like the best deals. And I'm, and you know what? I came from the, like my family came from a former Soviet Union and former Soviet Union is just fraud. Basically like yeah. that's how you live because corruption. And I was so proud to be in America that I'm like, this is beneath me. I don't want to do any of this shit. So I'm like, all right, cool. Let's do Verizon. Because in Verizon, there was no fraud. It was super strict. They had very high quality assurance for all of their dealers. They wouldn't just approve anybody. And the product, A, was excellent. And B, at that time, their marketing was 
superior to T-Mobile's, right? They were just destroying it because just because they had the distribution, they had better marketing distribution. You had you saw Verizon ads everywhere. Uh, so yeah, we went and we opened up a Verizon store in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, uh, in 2008. Or, you know, um, and then yeah, from that we basically what ended up happening is we ended up focusing really on customer service versus sales, and that was so radically different from all the other dealers, which just focused on sales first, uh, that stores around us started to get closed down because they weren't, yeah. So Verizon would close stores if they didn't hit certain metrics and customer service was one of those metrics. And the thing is, employees didn't really care about customer service because if the store gets closed, they just get another job somewhere else. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, and this just goes showing like those low turnover or high turnover positions people like a lot of times their their kids in high school their their kids and you know working part-time in college like they don't care and i think the companies that can help actually make those people care and, and you know give them an environment where it's not like you're just kind of in there you know and then waiting to leave every day you know what i mean i feel like and we all know that we all know exactly what that is you know what i mean you walk in you deal with someone who doesn't want to be there and then they leave and they're like fuck it i'm out so yeah, the nine, yeah. Nine, nine to five and I'm leaving at four fifty five, yeah. basically. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we were the ones working the store. So it was one of the partners was always in the store. A lot of times it was both of the partners in the store. Um, at that point I realized I couldn't do both. I couldn't like work the Verizon store and work the T-Mobile store. Uh, and I told my partner in T-Mobile, the issue, why I didn't bring him into the new business. And he's honestly a like, a very nice guy, and he has one of the most important qualities in a partner that you would need. More important than anything else is he like he would never fuck you over. Yeah, he would never steal from you. He wouldn't like he wouldn't do that. Uh, and you know that's why like my hat's forever off to him. But um, at the same time, I was bringing like seventy percent or eighty percent of the sales because I was super social, uh, and he was somewhat social. But he had like a side job. He was DJing and everything like that. Like for me, that's all I was doing. Uh, it just wasn't worth it, right? Like, why am I... I didn't want to give him 50% of something. Yeah. So, and, but at the same time, I wanted to be fair. So I'm like, listen, I'm going to leave the business. And I left actually after our biggest sales month ever. Like, I left, I, I quit at the top. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, I retired 15-0. Uh, and I'm like, whatever it's worth in a year, just give me half. So I... Because my time was more valuable than the equity in the company because I was the one that was making the company valuable. So my time wasn't being used correctly in that space, you know? Uh, so like in a year, obviously, the store wasn't worth much. I think I ended up like, what, 3K for it or three and a half thousand. Really? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was some like ridiculous number. But... Verizon really took off. It was Williamsburg, like off of, like right off the bat, we were already doing more numbers than we were doing in, in the T-Mobile store. And obviously the rent was higher, but also the quality of the customers was higher because Verizon is known as the premium brand. So I've, then you get the premium customers. If you're the premium brand, they're easier to deal with. They had more uh, spending uh, uh, budgets basically. So yeah. And then other stores started getting shut down. And then uh, because they weren't either hitting their metrics or they weren't hitting their customer service metrics. And what Verizon would do is like, hey, this store is going to get shut down. Do you guys want the territory? Yeah. And we're like, hell yeah, we want the territory. It's right next to us. So I believe we had five total stores shut down around us. Uh, and uh, yeah, we grew to, we currently have 12 locations and that business is you know, it, it works really well. We were able to expand, A, because of Verizon, 
was telling us, hey, you guys could take those stores. Mm -hmm. But also because I realized that humans was the most important asset in that business. Because that's the difference between a good store and a bad store. Same thing. The difference between a good restaurant and a bad restaurant is really not the food. It's really like the service and the people that make the food. You know, so like as a business, I'm not talking about like the, the product, but like yeah. as a business, that's what, that's where you make money. And same thing in retail. There's a very long story, but yeah, there's sorry. a lot, it's <laughs> okay. There's a lot in there that I want to, um, that I think would be, would be good to point out. So I'm thinking of like three things, but I'll just pick one. So when you talk about cell phone stores, right, you're an entrepreneur, you've been in, in this ecosystem for a while. It's not like the sexiest business to be in. What, <laughs> but at the same time, you're doing solid numbers. It's a stable business. It's growing. What, like right now, there's so much hype about starting a cool tech company or, or just doing something that you can, you know, post on Instagram. But most of the businesses that, that are around us, you know what I mean? They're just everyday businesses. They're a store, they're a restaurant, they're whatever. And just being able to scale that is very similar to scaling, you know, any other type of business. So what kind of, like say someone is debating whether they say they have some money and they're like, should I just buy the store and transform it? Or should I just go and start my own thing? Like what kind of advice would you give to that person? Like how should someone think about it when they want to maybe it's franchise, maybe it's not a franchise, but buy one of those kinds of businesses and try to scale it? So the reason I got into this business is because I worked in the business. Yeah. I managed a store. And I knew what it could do. So I had enough data and I had enough skill sets to be able to predict my success or failure. Now, that's basically the difference. Uh, and I always tell, like, people come to me for consulting all the time, you know, and they always give me these uh, ideas, like, I'm going to build Uber for dogs or whatever the fuck yeah. it is. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, great. Uh, how many developers do you have? Are you able to code yourself? You know, how many dogs do you know? Uh, it's, it's, it's not about the idea. It's, it's about what can you execute on and what do you have a special skill set to execute on? I had a special skill set for running a cell phone store in that neighborhood. So it's like it was super, super niche. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether something is sexy or not. If you have a special skill set to execute on it, you do it. Um, my, my, like, the example I always give people is, you want to start Uber for dogs, but you have a thousand rolls of toilet paper and your best friend works in Charmin procurement. What's your business? Selling toilet paper to Charmin because you have a thousand rolls of toilet paper and your friend works for Charmin. Uh, so not, you, know, you don't have to be an Elon Musk to have a good business. You know? Yeah, and I think that's a great point also because the skill set that you learn from you know the cell phone business and and scaling it and going to t growing to 12 locations and you know investing in other businesses now you actually take all of those and bring it over to swag up where you're running operations you're essentially building this business you know not from the ground up but from very very early on so i i think you know for everyone out there it's like exactly what you're saying if you're good at something just do it and eventually, you know, you're going to pick up other skills. You're going to find other things that you're interested in and you can always expand to somewhere else. And I mean, once you're successful in business, now you have money and you can pretty much do whatever you want for the most part. You know what I mean? So it's like, there's a lot of options out there. And I think it's, it's, 
in terms of the stories that we've had on this podcast, it's very different from the typical one where it's like someone just was working somewhere and they just started a tech company. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's very different, but you know, the result, when you look at it, it's like very similar. So I don't know. I just, I just find that pretty fascinating. Well, there's a lot of creative people out there, whether they're going to be successful or not, that's to be decided. I think what's missing a lot of the times is operations. There's not a lot of operators, there's not a lot of executors. There's a lot of uh, daydreamers, I would say. Yeah. Uh, but it's the fun n- part. Right. So I got to give you a little bit of backstory. So it's 2008, right? That's when I started uh, get really getting like into my business. 2007 is really when I started, but uh, 2008 is when I started with Verizon. You know what happened in 2008? Recession. So uh, I, I pride myself on being anti-fragile, which is basically turning losses into wins. Mm-hmm. Should you like, read the, the, the book? Yeah, yeah, of course. Okay. Uh, yeah, Nicholas yeah. Taleb. Uh, it's on the list. I haven't read it yeah, yet. He's, he's, he's one of my favorites. I mean, I th- that's like my, my business Bible. Um, but the point being is I'm not even good at winning. I'm really not good. Like when I'm making a lot of money, I'm not good at it. I, I always get... Like I always get back to like a lower amount, but I'm really good at losing. Like I'm so good at a preventing loss or turning loss into break even or, t- or turning loss into a win. That's like my, my biggest. And that's, and that's because that's what I learned. In 2008, everything crashed, right? You couldn't get loans. You couldn't get money. You couldn't get credit. You couldn't get jobs. And, uh, you know, businesses were ter- closing down and businesses are still closing down. Uh, it, retail right now is a shit industry. The retail industry is shrinking. Blo- uh, uh, Radio Shack closed. The Wiz closed. Toys R Us went through bankruptcy. So retail all over is closing down. But what I'm good at is realizing what are the weaknesses in the industry and how can I could turn that into a strength. So 2008, the reason I was able to uh, survive and get these quality employees is because people kept were getting fired or were not able to were not able to find jobs that are really high quality. So it's ten percent unemployment. So I have my pick of the litter for employees. Uh, landlords were desperate to to rent. So I was I was able to lock in ten year leases at bottom barrel prices. You know, I, the advantage wasn't uh, the retail business. The advantage was the industry. I'm sorry, the market, the market around it, right? And because of that, I was able to survive uh, the decline of retail overall, and I was able to pivot to more of a service rather than uh, a consumer-based retail model. So people would come into my store not to buy an iPhone, but people would come into my store to find out how an iPhone works, which is basically Apple's model right now. That's why Apple retail has been so successful themselves. Uh, but that's, that's basically the, the gist of it is there's not a lot of people right now starting businesses that have gone through a bear market and know how to maneuver on tight margins. My margins are 2% in retail. We, you know, we, do, we did $22 million in revenue last year. My margin is 2%. So we make a shit ton of money, for example, on cash back, on credit cards cash back. And like, it's funny, but I brought that here, right? We, I know how to squeeze out profits from like I know how to get blood from a stone, basically. Yeah. And, and where where did that come from? What do you think? The fact that I grew up on welfare, like that's my superpower. Yeah. I'm, I was poor when we came to this country in ninety, you know, in ninety five. We, yeah. you know, how, we, how old were you when you came here? I was seven years old. I came with my brother who was seventeen, my mom, my grandma, and my great grandma. So basically, women and children, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my budget for the day was fifty cents. 
Like my mom gave me 50 cents. I bought a quarter drink and then I saved all the quarter enough till I was able to buy like a PlayStation game. Like that was my shit, you know? Uh, So that's that's why I was good at it because I never had any money. That's why I'm really good with small budgets and, and, and low amounts of money or versus when I have a lot of money, it's, it's, you can't do that. Yeah. The only difference will become is at high revenue. If I'm able to get another 1% out of something, that's a lot of money. It's a big difference. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, so how do you think someone who doesn't have that experience? And, and this goes back to one of the other questions that I wanted to ask. You know, you said a lot of this stems from the fact that you were hungry. You, you, you experienced these moments where you were actually struggling. You were embarrassed because you didn't have money. You know, and this is like one of those paradoxes where it's like, you know, it's obviously no one wants to go through that. But going through that is actually an advantage for so many other things for someone who hasn't gone through that. And, you know, they're not necessarily hungry or just off the bat. They're not hungry. How can someone find that hunger? And do you think like or how can someone also, you know, get that mindset to, to save money and to view things that way? Do you think it's possible or and if not, do you think it's possible to kind of, you know, be a a good entrepreneur and, you know, not be hungry. So I think, I think it's possible. Uh, Michael, who you've also had on this podcast, uh, his family is all right. And he's got the same hunger. And I always tell him how impressed I am that he is that hungry where he doesn't need to be. So it's, I think it's more of like the people that are not forced through this it's it's all about how proud are they and how competitive they are, uh, and you it's it's almost like a lot of people say I'm arrogant and I guess that's like the negative spin on it. I would say self confident, but it's the same shit. But for me, uh, I don't want any kind of like I don't want a shortcut. You know what I mean? So when somebody goes, "Hey, here's a hundred million dollars," if it's for nothing, I don't want it. Like, I want to yeah. earn my money. And there are certain people like that. So the practical advice I would give to, to people that are, have things or are having things come easy for them, go do something that's not easy for you, right? Go get out of your comfort zone. If, you know, you have, uh, you're going to Ivy League school and everything like that, maybe take a lag year and go work as a waiter, right? Go work as a server. That's going to teach you humility real fast. It's going to show you how people really are when they're not like kissing your ass or it's not like, Hey, my daddy bought the school a wing. So yeah, that thing, that's the best thing. You like a lot of people invest money to go to college and learn something. Go be a server for a year, you know, go work in a retail store for a year. It's the same type of industry. Yeah. Yeah. I've worked in retail for a few weeks. Definitely. uh, (laughs) I couldn't, I, I think it was under a month. Um, yeah, it was, it was rough. Like, I mean, I'm glad I did it. Um, I think for me, I'm the type of person that like, I only need a very short experience to like fully understand yeah, it. that's fine. So I'm like, all right, I, I get how this is. I don't want to do this again. Um, and that was kind of my experience there. And, and yeah, I think, you know, it's nice that people don't have to experience that, that hardship and like do the grunt stuff, you know, growing up, but like there, there are other ways I think, you know, just by listening to other people's story, you know, putting yourself in in their shoes and saying, you know, maybe I didn't have to deal with this, but I can imagine what they had to deal with. And if I was in the same position, I would do things differently and like keep that perspective when, when you do, uh, when you just live your life. The reason I got into investing once again, is the same reason I got into, yeah, I was actually phones. just about to ask about investing. So yeah, yeah. we're on the same wavelength. I, exactly. I figured. So 
it was once again it was just me taking advantage of uh what life and what the market was throwing at me uh the way a franchise works and the way verizon works and a lot of others do too if it's a good one by the way if a bad one it works a different way but they don't just let you expand willy-nilly because they want to protect territories so they were only they didn't have expansion i think going on at that time they were only letting us expand if a store got closed down so we had to like basically outperform other stores get Verizon to go, hey guys, I think you should sell to your neighbor. And then we were able to, but that didn't happen on our terms a lot of times because you know that, you know, the red check mark in Verizon's logo, that's not a red check mark. That's red tape in reality. (laughs) So uh, that's how that company functions. But, um, and I, and then, like I said, we just had a lot of money sitting in the bank and we had nothing, we couldn't deploy it. And that made me like, you know, itchy, like, why yeah. isn't my money be working, right? Yeah, I, I have the same exact... I hate seeing just money, like, sitting there for no reason. Right, which is good and bad. And like I said, this is exactly when you start making mistakes. Uh, and I've had some very good investments, but I would say my best investments was when I lost money because you don't learn from winning. Uh, so I invested into a couple of sports bars, uh, one of them, the first one was Manhattan proper. Uh, my childhood friend, she was going out with a guy who was the general manager of public house. I don't know if anybody here has heard of it. It's a pretty popular spot. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. So pub, he was, he was a general manager. He basically built that space out and I'm like, all right, so you have the same story as me. You manage a place. Now you want to do your own place. That's very, very similar. So we opened up Manhattan proper in uh, Tribeca which is right next to my old high school, Stuyvesant High School. And I'm like, all right, I know that neighborhood. It's great. I actually have a store there too now. I have a 299 Broadway. Uh, I'm like, I know that neighborhood. It's going to be great. Uh, so that was the first one. And then we opened up a second one in Midtown, Proper West, which was the old EVR, if anyone's familiar with that one. Uh, EVR was the first uh, Bitcoin uh, ATM. Because oh, okay, yeah, I knew Charlie Sherm was yeah. an investor there. And... We we basically bought out the space from them, and then we converted it to Proper West. Uh, and uh, yeah, so so those were like pretty solid. And the thing is, on the on Manhattan Proper and Proper West, especially Manhattan Proper, I did a lot of the heavy lifting with. Uh, besides investing my money in, I brought in a lot of investors too. I brought in close to fifty percent of the investor pool. So that was my first experience with raising outside capital for something too. So that was like a really cool experience. Um, and then I invested into a vegan creperie, Little Chalk. I just saw um, this girl, and I was very bullish uh, on female entrepreneurs. And I actually was. I still am. I'm, I'm, it's just I don't have too much access to it. But I'm very bullish on female entrepreneurs. And I actually ended up going back to school. I, I did graduate from Baruch Zicklin. After, I'm, I'm one of the first people to drop into school after starting a business because I realized that I was missing that skill set, the yeah. practical skill set of like managerial accounting and uh, business law and everything like that. But anyways, why I, uh, I went off tangent on that is I wrote an article about uh, capitalizing on the sexism of the corporate world or basically the investor world. Uh, if It's a supply and demand thing. So there's X amount of female entrepreneurs there's not a high level of demand for investing into female insurance and the data shows that like just blindly. So five years ago, it was even worse. And I'm like, okay, so she's really hungry. She's hungrier than anybody else that I've seen, right? Uh, maybe even hungrier than me when I was first starting out. I'm like, that's, that's who I want to invest in. 
And uh, yeah, her name is Julia Kravitz. She's an amazing female entrepreneur. She was literally like on her hands and knees scrubbing the basement of wow. this place, like painting everything, learning everything. Um, it's it's an like it's it's an amazing business. This vegan crepery, the product is very high quality. Um, so yeah, that was that, that's 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 like one of my favorite investments uh, in terms of just the product. Uh, besides obviously swag up, <laughs> which, which is just, but like, it's, it's like a different type of business, you know what yeah. I mean? Um, so yeah, so I, I took a chance on her at where other people, you know, might've not like our Kickstarter, we did it. She did a Kickstarter at the same time. Like it's not going to work because people are just not going to invest like that into a restaurant, which is like a high failure rate. Um, so yeah, that place has been amazing. We, we got four and a half stars on Yelp. We're constantly featured everywhere like vice just did a shoot uh thrillist just did another shoot like capital one paid thrillist to do a story on us which was amazing wow yeah and they paid us too so they paid us to advertise us yeah vice is doing like another shoot there um so yeah so little chalk Manhattan prop proper west i invested into one of my former campers who then i hired as an employee because he wanted to leave and I didn't want to just lose him as an employee because he wanted to start his own business. I'm like, all right, so just whatever you do, come back to me. And then if it makes sense, I'll invest. And it was an auto leasing company uh, and I invested into that. Um, And then these are the ones that were successful. And then I had a couple of uh, bad investments, I would say. And those are the ones I learned for. So my best lesson came at a cost of a hundred and to no lying to you, one hundred eight thousand dollars. So, Decent amount of money. Wait, wait, ninety two thousand dollars. Apologize, we got some of the money back. So ninety two thousand um, dollars, and I learned so many lessons in that investment. It was basically a clothing company. It was uh, Sprite gave them free advertisement during the All Star Game that they had oh, wow. uh, a couple of years ago. They had you know the All Star Game in New York, so they had this like campaign thirst of the boroughs where they would pick out uh, businesses from New York City this kid's business got picked and it was all-star game was held in February he was a clothing brand and he got a flood of orders it was basically the Oprah effect have you you know how we know how the Oprah effect works well if she recommends someone then people then people buy the product right but the problem is like it's a negative effect honestly the problem is that the company is not ready to fulfill mm. the order volume and it collapses onto itself. So that's what happened with him when he got uh, uh, the orders because of Sprite. He got so many orders, but he wasn't able to validate the orders and he wasn't able to fund the orders. So the, normally what happens in the clothing industry is that there's a factor who pays, who, who loans you money against your future orders. But he had like five days to get this money because it was also Chinese New Year and he was sourcing from China and China goes bye-bye for like basically the entire month of February. So he, re- he reached out through a friend to me to fund the orders. And what ended up happening is a lot of the orders that were replaced were replaced by small retailers that ended up canceling because he wasn't able to get the stuff on time. And he only fulfilled half the orders. So he had a choice, basically pay me back my money or continue operating and hope to sell the rest of the orders. Now, the problem is he wasn't going to have another free advertising boost from Sprite because that was just a one-time deal. So he basically bet my money on himself to, to, to you know, dig his company out. 
and he paid himself a salary. So in my mind, and like, again, there's so many lessons to unpack here. Number one, I did this whole entire loan in maybe a span of five days because it was rushed. Uh, my money was sitting there and I felt uncomfortable. The money was just sitting there. So not enough time for due diligence mistake of, uh, just wanting to invest your money versus finding the right deal for your money. Uh, I got blinded because uh, his, he was worked for a former, he, in a, the company he worked for before, he was mentored by Peter Thiel. Really? So I was like, oh shit, Peter Thiel says this guy is cool, so he must be cool, right? Uh, and then he also went to my high school and he was recommended by a mutual, well, let's say a former friend at that time. So clearly all of these things are wrong. And I didn't have the proper legal paper, paperwork. I was cheap. I went cheap on the legal too, because he was basically able to declare personal and business bankruptcy, uh, and I didn't have. I didn't have. It wasn't a collateralized loan. So if I would have been able to uh, curb his revenue, I would have been fine. But I didn't put that in there because I gotcha. made the contract myself instead of yeah. using an actual lawyer. So, so I mean, it seems like obviously you know there were a lot of great signals there that made this seem like you know easy, easy deal. Definitely do this. Um, but it ended up, you know, not being the case. So when you do look for those good deals, what are the things that you look for specifically to make sure that this is something where there's an upside, you might be possibly protected from something going wrong? Like what kind of deals are you looking for now? I mean, it's, I would have caught this, that the fact that this is a bad deal right off the bat if I did my due diligence. So it wasn't on the surface, the deal looked good and still looks good on the surface. Right. Uh, but then I would dove into his actual orders and called this clients and be like, hey, are you guys still interested in this, right? The top, the top uh, uh, clients that were ordering. And I would have done research on the clients. Or like, are they AAA uh, creditors or are they going to like renege on the order? The other thing is I didn't know how the, that industry functioned and I got into it. And I, would, I don't do that anymore either. I go into things that I understand or I have someone to do my due diligence for me, right? Um, and then the third thing is, obviously, I would have proper legal documents. A lot of people try to save money on legal. I don't do that anymore. Like, that's, that's the number one thing. Because you pay for it either later or, you know, yeah, you basically you pay for it either now or you pay for it later. And it's usually 10x later. Uh, so the kind of deals I look for is, can this person execute on what they're doing? And has, is this person trustworthy? So that's the most, that's the most important thing is, are they, are they going to, do they have the ability to execute or are they trustworthy? Those are basically the two things. Uh, most people cannot execute on the things they want to do. How can you tell if someone can execute? Like what, say you have, say you haven't had a professional relationship with someone. What are the signals that they would give off? You know, maybe just personally that, that would give you the, the insight that they can execute. So what makes you special? Like, why do you have a special end to do this? It goes back to that same example as before. This person has a thousand rolls of Charmin paper, and he knows a person that's willing, that buys Charmin paper, right? If you have that, there's a clear path to execution. Or this person has sold a thousand rolls of tissues or whatever, and now he wants to sell toilet paper. So it's something that a person has already done or something very similar, and they have a clear in or a clear advantage to do it better than a random Joe Schmo 
right? A lot of people work backwards. They find the idea like, all right, now how can I enable yeah. how to make this idea? It's not like they don't look at their skill sets. So I just literally look, hey, can you physically do this? And have you done something similar before? Or if you haven't, what's a special talent that you have for doing this? You know? Yeah, I think like what you're saying there, I think is so important because early on, especially, you know, myself included, I would just think of like crazy ideas and be like, I want to do this and not, you know, even consider the fact of like, am I the best person to do this? Is there something better that I could be working on? Could I like, do I have any connects in this, in this industry? Like, can I, do I even like this industry that much other than just the surface? You know what I mean? A lot of the times it's like, not really. Um, and you realize like you don't even want to be doing this and definitely don't want to start a company, uh, with, you know, without fully committing. So I think it's, it's so important to like, be honest with yourself, look at yourself from just a third person's perspective and say, who am I? Like, who is this person? What are they good at? And where can I mix the, what I'm good at my skill set with what I like. And I feel like when you do that, it's, it's when you actually find something, it's when you do a good job and it's when you actually commit because otherwise, you know, you could do a good job and if you don't like it, you're not going to commit or you could commit and you're just not doing a good job. And you know, it's, it's pretty, it's not worth that much either at that point. So people lack self-awareness. I would say that's the other thing I need to see in a person. When I meet the person, I'm like, why are you going to fail at this? Mm -hmm. Like what is going to happen? What is the catch? And if they're not able to answer that question that they're lacking knowledge, either in the industry or they have willful blindness. And I'll tell you right now why every single one of my companies will fail or uh, why I'm not a fit to be in the position in every single one of my other companies. And the reason I am in the position is because nobody as better has come out yet or it's not worth their time to take over my position, right? So a lot of people, don't, they don't see that. Like, I, like people have willful blindness to their own weaknesses or to the weaknesses of their companies. So that's what, that's the other thing I look for. I'm like, tell me why this is, I don't care how, why this is going to succeed. Tell me why this is going to fail. And how do you have a special, special skill set or a special end to stop this company from failing? That's, that's like the other major key that I look for when I'm, you know, thinking about investments. Yeah. Yeah. That's super helpful. And, you know, one of the things I've noticed about you, especially when I first met you a few months back when, when I, uh, was, uh, interviewing Michael on on the podcast, which for everyone listening, if you haven't heard it, it's episode 10 and episode 11. So check those out. Um, (laughs) when I met you, you were, you know, running ops at swag up a startup that, time intensive, work intensive, but you also at the same time have a bunch of these other companies that are functioning, you know, some of them full on, you know, some of them different levels, but you're, you know, at any given time, I don't know how many businesses, like five, six, seven, all, all at once. How do you manage that? Like what kind of systems you have to put in place to be able to effectively, you know, have these businesses growing and, and running and, you know, profiting you in the back burner, but at the same time, focusing your, your energy on something that you're trying to build and, and eclipse all those other businesses. So two things. Um, the obvious answer is people. I have amazing partners in, in, in the businesses that I'm involved in. I have amazing partners in Verizon. I have, I mentioned Julia, uh, from Little Chalk. I have, uh, really solid operators in, uh, uh, Manhattan proper, proper West. They have two other locations in DC, DC proper and proper 21 also. Um, so I have, those guys are, you know, just kick ass, but I also had to kill a business to, uh, take on my position and swag up, which was an opportunity cost 
because because I couldn't find uh, enough people uh, to commit, and that's my fault. That's my weakness because I wasn't able to find the right people. Yeah. Which to, business? Uh, so I have. I mean. It's not the growth of it is killed. I have still clients yeah. that are like on contracts, but I'm not like the business is not growing. So Dev Tribe would be that business. Okay. And see, that's a business that I was able to get into because I had the capital and I wanted to really learn how to run a modern business mm-hmm. versus like yeah. a retail business. And for everyone who isn't familiar, what do they do real quick? <laughs> so originally what the, co- the concept was, I had access to this kick-ass enterprise development team in Ukraine, which was working for a bunch of top level Fortune 500 companies. And they, they were basically being bought out the contracts were being bought out and the talent was available. So um, a buddy of mine, his uh, uh, father-in-law is the one that was sourcing the talent and was like one of the partners in the company. He's like, come, these guys are going to need work and they're really talented developers. And I was like, all right, dope. Technology is super important in business. Um, I've used technology in my retail business before anybody like before a lot of my competition in reality to really grow us. Like we built out a custom CRM system and uh, we built, uh, we uh, switched to like a really nice POS system. So technology has made an incredible difference in my retail business. So I'm like, okay, cool. So I want to do that for other businesses. Um, and I hired a, an amazing uh, marketing team and branding team. Cause I figured the biggest issue with outsource development is the brand and marketing, right? People, they, they don't want to pay, uh, $50 to Ukrainian team, they'd rather pay $150 an hour to a U.S. team where the quality will be similar. Now, where I wasn't able to make the connect is that I didn't lock in the contract with them and I wasn't exclusive. So they got slammed with leads from another person and when they were available... I didn't have the clients lined up. When they weren't available, I did have the clients lined up. So, and the issue was that I didn't have enough people. Like my sales director died two months into the job. It was insane. Uh, the marketing person, he came on board originally to, to be uh, the, my, uh, like, like an agency. He had his own agency. And I'm like, come be my CMO. He, he basically, his agency took off so much that he had to leave. Like I said, I couldn't retain the talent. And... I was at such a point and then I was helping Mike with swag up like on the side. I was kind of advising him on it from inception. And I'm like, listen, this company is taking off my company right now. I either have to once again go and source a team of devs to replace this current team because now they're, they're slammed with work while I have all these leads. Uh, I'm like, I always like I felt I was always chasing one side of it. So I'm like, let me put a stop to it. I'm not going to. Like I'm, it's, it's, I mean, look, the brand is still alive and everything like that, but I can't, it's not really, it's, I'm more like a consultant rather than an agency because I, because my, my top tier talent, I couldn't retain. So I'm like, let me go and help you in swag up and I'll bury this. Right. And in reality, there was a lot of sunk costs that went into it. And I still strongly believe in the idea, but I didn't have the ability to execute it versus in swag up. I had the ability to execute on what the company needed. You know, so uh, that's basically what it is. A, I had great people in place, but in the places where I didn't have great people, sometimes you have to make a choice. You have to kill your baby to go help, you know, raise somebody else's kid, which is basically what what's happened in, in Swag Up. And it's honestly, it's because of Michael and because of Helen, who's our other partner, that I did that because they're just um, like amazing 
people. Like I could build an amazing company, but I'm not going to get people like that. So instead of me building a company and trying to find the people, I'm like, I don't care what you guys are doing. I want to work with you uh, to make this a success. So. Yeah, I, th- I think that's, that's so interesting because uh, much of the time, you know, especially now, everyone's like, I want to start something. I want, you know, to be the person that cr- has the idea that creates it. But if you f- if you're able to find a team of people that you like to work with, you know, especially at the very early stages and you're able to see the vision for, for what it can be, you know, getting in early is like I'm a big believer. I think, you know, getting in as early as possible is, is amazing. I think most people aren't cut out to be the idea person and the execution person and the operations person. So like almost no one is, um, even though many of us think we are. And I, f- I feel like you have to do it. And then you start realizing that you're like, I, I can't, I can't handle this. But, but that's awesome that, 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 you know, you made that connection. You had to do that difficult decision to, to figure it out. I'd love to know how'd you actually meet the, the swag up team? Like where did this connection come from and, and how for everyone out there who's curious about like, Oh, how do I become a co-founder or like, and you know, one of the first people on the team, how, how do you, you know, have that kind of conversation? Sure. Um, so I'm very open with giving consulting advice to anybody that's starting out. Uh, and that's basically what I was doing for Michael, and I'm doing that for several other companies right now. Uh, and uh, I just kind of keep an eye out. What, like, that's, my, that's, how I, that's my deal sourcing, right? I advise people with their startups and their companies, and then I see once they start picking up steam, I'm like, hey, hey, I want to invest, or hey, do you want me to come on board and in a more permanent uh, position. Um, but then the way, so that's how that conversation came about. But the way I met Mike was, it was actually through a junior high school buddy of mine who invested, like, as I mentioned, I brought people on to invest with Manhattan proper. Mm-hmm. He invested in Manhattan proper with me. And I know him from uh, junior high school. This guy's name is Thomas Contoris. He's an insane networker. Like, you name me a person, he'll get to that person. He's spoken to any kind, any type of CEO you wanted. He's spoken to athletes. Like, and the way he does that is straight up uh, through Instagram DMs. Really? Like, he slides into DMs for business. <laughs> like, guys slide into DMs for phone numbers. He slides into DMs for business. And he's, and he's just, like, I've never seen anyone that good. Yeah, you wow. Know? Yeah, I'd love, to, I'd love to see that in action. Yeah, I mean, he was he was able to get the people into Gary V's uh, as Gary V show and like everything, like just from scratch, like never speaking to him before ever again. Uh, he's like he just he just connects people. So he goes to me, hey, do you want to meet this guy, Michael? I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. I mean, I don't care. I mean, I haven't seen you in a while. Come through. Uh, let's have dinner together. So we us three have dinner, and Mike at that time, I believe he was like 21 or something like that, and. I like we start chatting and I see he's like really smart and he's smart, but he's humble. And he, I'm like, I don't understand how that's possible. And I think he just came off of selling like over 200 K worth of an ebook for uh, uh, for um, former uh, professional athlete, which is like insane. You, you sell like 200 or maybe 300 K, something like that of an ebook, which is just basically pure profits as a 20 year old 
And how are you still humble? Like if you look at Instagram, people sell $1,000 worth of something or $100 worth of something. They're, they're renting out Lambos and taking pictures and the whole nine. Nah, that's not Mike. You know, he's like, well, I, you know, this could have been done better. And this, like, I'm like, holy fuck, his superpower is self-awareness. I'm like, you know, I got to get into business with this guy. So we're like brainstorming, what can we do together? Tom, Tom was there and he's like, I want to manage uh, Instagram influencers. I think that's hot. I'm like, ah, oh, no. I'm like, I worked in a summer camp before. I don't want to work in another one. Like that's, <laughs> you know, yeah. that's, that's a very difficult job. Uh, and Mike is like, well, I want to do some marketing stuff. I don't know. And we kind of like just fucked around and we couldn't come up with an idea. And then the idea, like I, I, I had this like team of developers. I'm like, oh, let me just build a you know, marketing brand and a market. Let me just do the marketing and build a brand for them. And then Thomas started managing um, a couple of these like top name um, influencers, like 2 million followers, 4 million followers. Um, and then Michael went and he started working at a VC, not a VC firm, at a consulting firm uh, at the same time. So he was getting some experience. So we kind of like went our separate ways. And then he started doing swag up on the side while working for this company. And then I just kind of, that's like when I started, I started advising him on like the boring shit, like, you know, what kind of insurance coverage should I get and all that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. So, you, so you guys go way back. I didn't even realize that. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's just literally DMs. And yeah. Thomas met Mike through him sliding into his DM really? at that time. So I think, I think it's so under, and I think what you said about not not just the DMs, but the ability for people to connect people with other people that they think would be a good fit. I think that is one of the most amazing superpowers anyone can have because it's great for multiple reasons. One, you're doing, you're providing huge value to two other parties, but at the same time, if you're connecting people that need to be connected because they can do something great, you're always going to benefit. And, and that's something that I, you know, started actively trying to do. I was like terrible. I, I mean, before this podcast and before I was in sales and really up until that point, I was the worst at reaching out to anyone. Like I hated reaching out to people. It made me uncomfortable. It made me like anxious. I still honestly like still don't like it. Uh, for the most part, but you know, sometimes you're just like, I need to send that email. I need to send that LinkedIn message. I need to send that DM, you know, (laughs) what, what, like for different types of reasons, but like still, you know, it's, and once you do it, and then I think the greatest part is like, once you have many conversations, you're able to understand, like I spoke to this person and they sound very similar to someone else I spoke to maybe like six months ago. Why not introduce them? And I've never had a bad experience introducing people. I think it's always worked out well. Um, and you have nothing to lose. I think it's... So I'm, I'm careful with my introductions a little yeah. bit. But at the same time, my greatest network is, be, is partly because I take people that are underperforming or underachieving and I put them in positions where they could perform and achieve. And even though they've done the work, they give me the credit because I've given them that opportunity, which is insane. You know, these are people who were just overlooked and they weren't in the right place. And the reason they're successful is a hundred percent them. It may, you know, yeah. me putting them, it's just serendipity, but I get the credit from it. And that's why I have a lot of people who I could pull favors from at high levels. And what I end up doing is I don't even, and I don't even pull favors for myself. I pull it for other people and you just kind of like build a wealth of favors for yeah. yourself. <laughs> And you don't have to pay taxes on favors, right? That's the best thing about it. Yeah. Like, a lot of people like to acquire equity and like to acquire cash. You got to pay tax and all that shit. You keep 100% of your favor profits, you know? Uh, so yeah, and that goes hand in hand with connecting people. My first business, that, that store, 
the reason I was able to basically quadruple the sales there is because I was selling to my friends. My friends made that store happen, you know, and that's me reaching out to people on Facebook and going, hey, what are you paying for your cell phone? Or, hey, are you having issues with your cell phone? Come by, I'll fix it for you for free, no charge. Uh, Or, you know what, let me lower your bill. Oh, I don't have T-Mobile though. I have whatever, Verizon, right? At the time, I didn't have Verizon. I'm like, yeah, just come in. Let me lower your bill. How are you going to do that? I'm going to call customer service and I'm going to bitch it out for you. Right, I would do things that would give me no benefit, except for the fact now that person goes, "Wow, this per- he really cares." I'm gonna come to him for all my cell phone issues. And later on, when I got Verizon, they're like, "Oh, I remember Artem helping you with Verizon. Now he's got Verizon. Dope. Let That's me go the get guy. Verizon for him." Exactly. Yeah. I think, and again, another great point that I think is so underrated. Just you, you I mean, there's a, there's a you know a certain point where you don't want to be doing everything for free, but just helping people out, you know, at the beginning, especially when someone needs help with something, depending on what stage, especially if it's early, like you can't expect people to give you money or, or you can't expect someone that you don't really know the well to just start giving you equity, just helping people out, doing stuff for free, giving good advice. And what you start to realize is if you're actually giving someone high quality advice and high quality help, they're not going to like you know, screw you over just for nothing. Like the next time they need something, they're going to come to you. And next time they're actually going to pay, or maybe it's not the next time. It's but if the they time screw after you over. It's fine. So yeah. The, so, and, and this is what people don't understand. They're like, what if I do this thing for this person for free and they're not grateful? Cool. You just got something very valuable. It's called data. And you know that that person is not grateful. Yeah. Uh, my grandma always used to say my great grandma, actually, if you loan somebody $20, and they don't give it back to you, it's worth the $20. So it's the same concept. I did, I did favors for so many people, and it was actually great if I could see that they weren't grateful. Like I would let people borrow cell phones when their cell phone broke down, and the person that didn't give them back the phone, I'm like, cool. Now I know I'm not going to spend time with you later on in life, or when it's time for me to hire someone, I know exactly which person gave me back the $20 and which person didn't, right? It's a really good test of character. Uh, and the same thing for favors, right? So now I know which person, when you do a favor for them, is grateful, which person isn't. I'm not just doing it for them. I'm also collecting data on these people. So later on, when the stakes are higher, you could go and you have that data to act on it. So I'm totally fine with people being ungrateful for favors or not paying me back money or whatever it is, as long as it's you know, within reason, because you get that data. And it's more important to know who's not going to be grateful than who is grateful. Yeah. Like you need to know how to avoid the bad eggs yeah. too, you know? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, we're coming up on an hour here. Um, I want to, you know, turn this back over to kind of what you're working on right now, the big thing, swag up. So, you know, we had spoken with Michael. Obviously, uh, I'm sure you guys are aligned in, in the mission. But before we started recording, we were talking about, you know, some of the challenges you guys are having, what you're working on. Uh, just as an update, you know, what is swag up? What, what has changed since, since, you know, I was last year, like five, six months ago. And what are like the big things that you guys are working on right now? So what swag up does is we create welcome packs for mostly fortune 500 CEOs. Uh, and that's like our core business. And on your first day, when you start at Google, Facebook, whatever, you get a nice custom box with branded merch inside of it. So it could be as simple as a t-shirt or it could be as cool as a paper mache brick that you have to open with a hammer and then like an event invitation pops out. Uh, You know, we've done beats that we've customized. We've done 
a lot of like really cool. That's like what our MO is, is that we go like above and beyond for clients. Uh, and that's like the agency side of the business because people either fill out a form online or call us and then we really handhold everything. What we're transforming it into right now, and this is some of the growing pains, is we're building technology around it. And the technology is twofold. So we don't have any issues with leads. We have a shitload of leads. It's, it's actually, I've never seen a company have so much sales come in so easily. So yeah. yeah, I remember most of this, if not all of it, was like inbound, right? All of it is inbound. All of it, wow, still? Yeah, all of it is still inbound. And we basically can't keep up. And we just have to, like, we in, we implemented a filter system, and we still have a hard time keeping up. Uh, just because, once again, this is credit to Michael, it's a perfect product fit for what the market needs. But what we realize is that we have a huge, huge bottleneck in operations and production. And the way we were solving that is we decided to build technology around it, because there is no technology that could function as our back end. Like yeah. We looked at NetSuites and like all these other uh, ERP systems and I'm like, this is just crap. This is garbage. It's not even that a fact that it's going to be expensive, which it is. It's just not what we want and we won't be able to give our clients the quality of service that we want if we use these like old school uh, legend systems. So, we're, so that's what we are doing right now. We're building a back end ops system on Salesforce, custom built, and then we're, at the same time, we're building the front-end system where people can integrate into their HR platforms. So that way, instead of just uh, having to call us or yeah. order anything themselves, I as see. soon as somebody's hired, a, sh- a box automatically gets shipped to the office or to their house if they're remote. And inside that box, the logo and the merch is pre-approved already by a team. They get notifications. That person gets promoted. You mark that off into your HR platform. Another box comes out that was already predetermined ahead of time. Uh, and then you have approvals for your sales teams and Salesforce. Hey, we want to send nice packs or nice merch to these top clients. And then it's automatic. So that's what we're becoming right now. We're, we're using the agency side to fund the tech side and we're becoming a SaaS and integration yeah. provider. And I mean, that's, that's where the scale is. Like imagine, you know, you're working with a Google, I don't know how many people they hire every year, like a thousand or something. Definitely more than that, but yeah. Right. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's whatever. It's you like know. One department, yeah, but. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. You know, thousand at whatever, what's your average box cost? Like 50 bucks? Yeah, I mean, yeah, like 50 that. bucks is, 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 pretty, is pretty standard. yeah. Um, but yeah, no, the scale is insane there. So the total addressable market for promotional product companies is $25 billion. And it's growing every single year. But that's not the most amazing number. The most amazing number is that there's 40,000 companies that are promotional product companies, basically doing what we are doing on the agency side. Furthermore, around 95% of them are doing less than $2.5 million a year. So $25 billion market, they're doing less than $2.5 million a year. Uh, We're already above that. So we're in the top 5% first year in. And the the biggest company is doing $984 million a year for imprint. So the market leader is doing $984 million. So nobody has crossed uh, the billion. And the reason is, they're not, they're not able to solve the customer's needs and wants. It's just there's no alternative, and that's why there's so many different players, and that's why even the biggest player is, you know, they, have, they don't even have 5% of the market. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. I think 
it's it's very rare to see something like that in in any industry. Um, it's a legacy. It's yeah. a, well, you know which industry you could see that in? Probably the taxi cab industry before Uber. Yeah. Right. There was a shit ton of different uh, TLC companies, and they were servicing some markets, and just it's they weren't giving the right solution, so there was no aggregation, and people had to use it because there was no other option, and that's basically what it is in promotional products it's a lot of legacy clients uh legacy providers even on the vendor side our other biggest issue besides the uh the software operation software is finding enough vendors to service all our clients these mom and pop shops aren't cutting it so that's like a lot of hoops we have to jump through also is is making sure that hey if somebody wants to place a 40,000 uh sorry 40,000 shirt order we're able to source those shirts in the right amount of time with the right quality at the same time. And a lot of times these like mom and pop shops, they go, yeah, 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 we got it. And like five days later, they're like, oh, you know, I have to go on vacation or, you know, like my son is sick. That's the thing about these businesses that people, uh, unless you're in it or you've experienced it or you know people who are running these kinds of companies, like you don't realize like having the person you're relying on just, you know, cancel or say, sorry, can't do it anymore is is very normal. Um, And, you know, the customer's, your customers don't care that your supplier cancel on you. They they're angry at you. They don't care if it was someone you know down south or overseas. Like it, it really is just your problem at that point. I'll tell you. I'll tell you the number. That's that's the scariest number. We lose seven percent margins because of vendor mistakes, uh, and we take the cost on that. We take the hit on that over our clients because we want to make sure that the product is still quality. So if we have a vendor completely fuck up an order, and that happens fairly often, the client never knows, because we go and we pay double for another vendor to do it and have the time, because we take every single hit. And that's like this, the thing that Michael and Helen, Helen also, like to an extreme extent, has driven home to every account manager. If it's not, if it's, if it's not our fault, it's still our fault. You know, and so eventually the plan is to uh, do some vertical integration, obviously, and acquire companies and have them run the right way. But uh, yeah, for now we just keep taking those hits, and uh, and we're still. And by the way, we don't pass those hits on to the client because we're still one of the cheaper vendors in the industry for the services that we provide. We're like we pride ourselves on being very high value. Um, so yeah, that's that's basically what SwagUp does in a nutshell, and that's where we're heading. Is we're heading um you know from the agency side into a more tech side. When you were talking about that, I feel like a, a good idea for a, for a new business is something that can uh, mitigate those vendor mistakes. Some kind of you know software or anything that well, that's what we're building. We're we're basically yeah. forced to build that internally, and I mean it's going to be funny, but I I personally think that the software is going to be the most valuable thing about the company like down the line, and not the front end software. Is the software? This software could be used for anything that any company that's sourcing from multiple vendors that are not reliable or mm. legacy or yeah. not or <laughs> not able to like fulfill the need, almost like Uber is doing. Uh, where you know they're sourcing from multiple drivers and multiple TLC companies and everything like that, and if one falls out last minute, another one is able to replace them. So that's basically what we're doing for promotional products, and you could also do that with subscription boxes and like a slew of other businesses. 
this just doesn't exist right now. And yeah, it's going to be basically like our AWS. Like Amazon loses money on their retail business and it makes a shitload on their AWS. And nobody knows that. People think Amazon makes money on retail. Nope. They dump that. They, they actually lose money on it and they drive businesses out because they're losing money on it. But on the back end, on the AWS, which they had to build out to service their uh, retail yeah. side, they make a shit. That's going to be our same exact thing for our that's software. Awesome. Yeah, I, I mean, just, just hearing about it, like that is what, to me, kind of started sticking out. Like obviously, you know, you have a good business, a lot of leads, a lot of customers, cash flow positive very young but doing well but if you want to take the next level it definitely needs you know that software piece that that's what's going to propel it to you know you know 100 million dollar ARR kind of a business so um so Artem as we're as we're wrapping this up uh this is one of the longer episodes I've ever done but I feel like we've talked about a lot of stuff we we talked about cell phone stores restaurants life love Instagram DMs, swag up, a lot of cool stuff here. Um, I'll just hand it over to you, you know, for everyone out there who wants to learn a little bit more about your story uh, and, and and swag up, where's the best place for them to, um, well, they already know, swagup.com uh, is, is where to check out the products. But if they want to connect with you personally, um, what's the best place to do so? Sure. So you could find me on LinkedIn, just Artem Ashkov. I don't believe there's another Artem Ashkov there, which is pretty cool. Um, Twitter, Artem underscore Mashkov, or Instagram, Artem Mashkov. Cool. Also. Yeah, uh, we'll link everything in the description. Yep. And listen, if you're out there and you want to start a business or you're starting a business and you need advice and you're not afraid of uh, some tough love, and that's major key because I'm not going to tell you what you're doing well, but I'm going to tell you what you're not doing well. Uh, yeah, you could reach out to me. I'm always down to help people that are genuinely looking for help. You know, don't reach out to me with sales shit. Don't try to sell me shit because that's literally my life and I will make fun of you if you do. But if you genuinely need help in your business, 100%, I will give you the time and uh, we, we could schedule a call and I'll help you out. Awesome. You guys heard it here. Reach out to Artem. Good guy. Good advice. Uh, thanks again for for uh, for doing the podcast. It's, it was awesome coming back here and, and seeing everyone. Awesome. Thank you, man. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, go rate and subscribe to the podcast. Leaving a rating on Apple Podcasts or iTunes goes such a long way. If you found something particularly valuable or interesting, definitely share it with your friends. We'd love to hear your feedback as well, so follow us and reach out on social media. We do the show every week, so stay tuned for more episodes. And until next time.